Good morning. My name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here at ZF, and this morning I get to continue on our series in the Gospel of Mark. Before we do that, would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we come before you now, even as we have heard your word and sung to you and prayed to you and heard testimony of your faithfulness and grace, we now ask that you would continue to be kind to us as we open your word. Open our eyes to see the glories of Christ on these pages. Open our hearts to be fittingly moved by his beauty and grace. We ask that you would do this through your Holy Spirit. Amen. In 2017, Rebecca Tavell wrote uh, in an academic journal an article that got her into quite a lot of trouble. Dr. Tavell is a philosophy professor at Rhodes College, and the, the substance of this academic piece is not so much what is of interest this morning, it's, it's rather the social dynamics of the fallout. Because what happened in the wake of Dr. Tavell publishing this article uh, is basically a 21st century version of a witch hunt. Uh, academic peers of hers that were very much from the same ideological tribe turned on her, uh, misconstruing her words and her arguments. They piled on. They took things out of context. They uh, put together an open letter with many, many signatures uh, demanding that her article be retracted. What was perhaps more chilling for Rebecca Tuvel than the animosity of strangers was the silence of friends. Uh, because she had one mentor, uh, another professor, who actually wrote uh, an essay defending Rebecca Tuvel. And as a part of this essay, uh, her mentor and friend shared stories about people who expressed in private support that they dare not express in public. This is what she said in this essay. In private messages, these people apologized for what Tuvel must be going through, while in public they fanned the flames of hatred and bile on social media. And so she asked, the question is, why did so many scholars express one sentiment behind closed doors and another out in the open? Why were so many others afraid to say anything in public? When someone is publicly attacked, those around them have to respond. And in a similar way, in the the week leading up to his crucifixion, it was clear, increasingly so, 
that things were turning against Jesus. He had had a number of public confrontations with the religious establishment in the the temple city, Jerusalem. He had been clearer than he had been up to that point about his own claims of authority, his own claim to be the rightful king of Israel. It was clear, to many at least, that Jesus was provoking powerful enemies. And so I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14, because in this ominous moment in Jesus' life, in which the walls are closing in around him, Mark tells us a story about how the people around Jesus respond to him in this moment against this foreboding shadow days before his execution. How will people respond in this moment? So I invite you to follow along. We're going to look at Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Mark 14, 1 through 11. This is God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. You cannot stay neutral towards a king like Jesus. 
That has been clear throughout Mark's gospel, and this story presses that point home with intensified profundity. In the shadow of the cross, we see four responses to Jesus, four different ways that the people around him dealt with this man who both claimed to be king and promised that he would be killed. You cannot stay neutral towards a king like Jesus. So let's walk through these four responses and see what they have to show us about our response to Jesus. Because just as much as then, even today, you cannot stay neutral towards someone like Jesus. The first response, quite simply, is rejecting Jesus. You can see this in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So that makes it pretty clear. The religious leaders of Jerusalem have decided in no uncertain terms that they want to destroy Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you have to remember this is coming in response to several explosive days in Jerusalem, in particular in and around the temple. So back in Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem with great fanfare, intentionally signaling that he views himself as the long-awaited king of Israel, the anointed one, the Messiah. And he proceeds in a number of interactions to challenge the existing religious establishment, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and, and to respond to their own challenges to him. So at the end of Mark 13, that has come to an end. Jesus has thundered his denunciation of Jerusalem, that the temple, the very heart of David's city, will be destroyed, and he will be revealed as the great son of man of Daniel 7. So what should have happened is the religious leaders should have turned away from their misguided rejection of Jesus, their suspicion of him, their opposition to him, and they should have submitted to him. But Mark 14.1 is making it clear that they refused to do that. They've heard the case that he's made. They have seen his responses to their objections to him. And verse 1 gives us their conclusion. He must die. But they have a problem. Verse 2 explains the reason they want to catch him by stealth, verse 2 says, is because they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So the feast there is referring to what verse 1 calls the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is the great celebration of Israel's birth as a nation, the Exodus event, the great escape 
from slavery in Egypt. And what this meant here is Jerusalem would have been filled with Jewish pilgrims from all over, filling the city in order to celebrate and observe Passover. So the city is, is packed. And it's not just packed, it's packed with uh, potentially explosive religious and, and patriotic zeal. So their concern is that if they arrest this popular rabbi from the north in front of a huge crowd while he's teaching, that it will set off some kind of riot or unrest, which would not be good for them. So the religious leaders reject Jesus. They want to destroy him. This is an exceptional example of a common response to Jesus, rejecting him, hearing what he has to say, and deciding, no way. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And the thing is, Jesus, Mark would say, Jesus is bringing a kingdom. And the kingdom that Jesus is bringing always provokes hostility from the kingdoms of this world. And I'm not just talking about nation states. The, the value systems and the ideologies and the, the ways of doing life that humans come up with are always threatened by the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. We see that today. We see all the ways that secular value systems and ideologies feel threatened by the reign of Christ. And we see in this story that religious value systems and ideologies, when they are built upon a refusal to submit to Jesus, they too are threatened by his reign and rule. And really, this goes all the way down to the individual heart. Each and every one of us, at some level, are naturally inclined to resist the right of Jesus to rule over us. We want to be king. Or if you want to be a little more nuanced, we will submit to rulers and value systems and ideologies so long as we believe that we can control and manipulate them. But Jesus is not a king like that. In fact, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing takes as its starting point, its, its first principle, its assumption that each and every one of us are desperately unqualified to be king. Now, this resistance to Jesus, this rejection of him, it can, it can hide behind logical arguments and intellectual objections. It can even be cloaked in deferential, polite words. But at root, rejecting Jesus is an expression of a heart that wants to be king instead of him. So 
Friends, if you're here today or you're watching on the live stream and, and this is you, this is how you are currently responding to Jesus, keeping him at arm's length, resisting his rule, rejecting him, I would ask you, I would challenge you to do one thing this morning. Be honest with yourself about why you're rejecting Jesus. Why are you resisting him? Because if underneath all the other hang-ups and objections is fundamentally the belief that you make a better king than Jesus, I think you should reconsider. Rejecting Jesus is the, the first response that Mark displays in this story. Now, the second and the third responses are woven together in a single scene. So we'll, we'll take them together. And the two responses are worshiping Jesus and underestimating Jesus. So the leaders reject Jesus. In the next scene, we see two responses woven together, worshiping Jesus on the one hand and underestimating him on the other. This is in verses 3 through 9. Look at verse 3. Here we see the, the worshipful response to Jesus. Verse 3 says, And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, in one sentence, Mark paints a picture of, of a moment that would have been jaw-dropping to those who were there. So, first of all, notice how much attention he draws to the, the cost of this ointment. It is expensive. It's exotic. It's imported. Verse 5 says that those there estimated it was worth 300 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage for a worker. So this is a year's wages of perfume or, or ointment. This was an extremely costly gift that this woman gave to Jesus. And notice, she doesn't just uncork it and dab a little bit here and a little bit there. She breaks it, verse 3 says, and pours it over his head. A year's worth of ointment poured out over Jesus in a moment. It's amazing. It's shocking. And what it shows is profound honor. This woman is honoring Jesus, even as the religious leaders are plotting to destroy him. And really, this is a picture of worship. It's not necessarily clear that she fully understands that Jesus is God in the flesh and is, is worshiping him as God. She might not totally understand that yet, but this is a picture of worship in the sense that her action demonstrates a profound value assessment. She is assessing the value and worth of Jesus 
extremely highly. So she worships, worships Jesus. Now, we'll come back to her response because Jesus says more about it in a moment. But Mark next directs our attention to the response of other people. Look at verse 4. So she does this incredible act of honor, of worship. But verse 4 says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Verse 5, For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. They did not keep this opinion to themselves because verse 5 says they scolded her. So this is an interesting objection. First of all, it's almost certain that these are friends of Jesus, probably some of them from among the 12. This is not a a large public gathering. This is a a dinner party at, at a person's house. So these are, these are not hostile enemies or, or members of the fickle crowd. These are people that respect and admire Jesus. And, and what's more, caring for the poor is one of the ethical pillars of the Old Testament. And if anything, Jesus amplified that principle even more than the Old Testament. So they're not wrong that Goods should be used to help the poor. So what, what will Jesus say? How's he going to respond to this? Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? And now he proceeds to explain, to interpret the meaning of what she's done. So we want to pay careful attention to Jesus' explanation of what has just happened. Look at verse 6, about halfway through. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 7, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So notice, first of all, what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say, I am always worthy of expensive anointings. Although that's true in a certain sense. He he could have said that. He ties his defense of the woman to what is about to happen. What, What gives this act its particular meaning, according to Jesus, is that he is about to die. So he says, you will not always have me. That, that could sound kind of generic, like I won't be around forever, but given the context, given what he said, given what's, hap- given what's happening, it's a little more pointed than that. Like the end for Jesus's earthly ministry is is coming rapidly. And then verse 8 puts it even more clearly. What she has done, he says, is she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So this act of, of worship, of honoring Jesus, it has a particular reference to the death and burial that he is about to undergo. And then he says something really interesting in verse 9. So he adds this final note 
Verse 9, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So first of all, an observation on verse 9. This is just one more example from Mark and from the four gospels of how much Jesus and the early Christians elevated and valued women in a way that was totally different from the cultures around them, both Jewish and pagan. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, writer, says this, that the portrayal of women in the Gospels is stunningly countercultural. So here you have in a room presumably full of men and, and maybe many male followers of Jesus, and who gets held up as an example, not just right now, but an example for the ages. It's an unnamed woman. Second, notice how this brings in the gospel to this conversation. Now, the gospel just means good news. What what we know now, what Mark's readers would have known when they heard that word, is that the good news fundamentally is that God has made a way for people to be restored to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. So notice what Jesus is saying. When this good news of restoration through my death, which is about to happen, as that goes out into the world, right along with that proclamation will be this story of an exemplary response to the gospel. Her her response is an example of saving faith. Of, of rightly assessing who Jesus is and embracing him with love and trust. So you have in Mark 14, 3 through 9, you have these two responses brought into contrast with each other. You have the woman worshiping Jesus and you have the other people present missing it, underestimating him. Now, there's a lot left unsaid. Like how much did the woman really understand? How much uh, foresight was she exercising here? Why did the other people miss the, the significance of what was about to happen? We don't necessarily get answers to those questions, but I think what we can say is that as Jesus is about to die, we see his death become a sort of test for how people respond to him. Because whatever the woman did or didn't understand, she sees Jesus in trouble, headed to the cross, walls closing in, and she worships him. These other friends of Jesus see the same things, and they seem to be oblivious. Or maybe they're in denial. Maybe they're so horrified by the idea that Jesus could come to such a terrible end that they're still trying to pretend like it's not going to happen. At some level, we can say they don't get it. They have underestimated not just who Jesus is, but the weight and the meaning and the 
glory of what he is about to do in going to the cross. Now, we know how the story ends. We read this on the other side of 2,000 years of church history, Christian influence, so that we are, are primed to, to say, yeah, we're like the woman, right? Like we, we get what Jesus is doing. There's an old, uh, well, it's not that old. There's a phrase that originated uh, several decades ago in the world of computer programmers, and it has since kind of become common to describe a lot of things. And the phrase is, it's not a bug, it's a feature. The idea being, whether it's used ironically or seriously, that there are things that one person might look at and go, that's a problem that needs to be fixed. But perhaps, in some cases, it's actually a designed function that's intended to be there. So when we think about the the woman and the rest of the people at this party, they're basically seeing the death of Jesus differently. Is the death of Jesus a bug or is it a feature? Is it a horrible, tragic end to be avoided or is it his crowning achievement? And our, our tendency is it's easier for us now to see it as a crowning achievement because for 2,000 years, Christianity has been so influencing Western civilization that the idea of someone giving up their life as a sacrifice for people who don't deserve it, it, it now has a certain resonance. It makes sense to us. It, it's compelling to us, even in places where uh, Christianity itself has been discarded, this idea is still beautiful to many people. But again, before we rush to say, oh yeah, we're just like the woman, we get it. We see Jesus dying and we go, that's his crowning achievement. That's a, it's a feature, it's not a bug. But here's the thing, before we rush to do that, I think we need to be careful because even for believers, even for Christians who have embraced Jesus like this woman in Mark 14, I think we have an ongoing temptation to underestimate him, and specifically to underestimate his death. Here are just two ways I think this can happen. First of all, we can get used to it. The death of Jesus is, along with his resurrection, the central truth of Christianity. And so, rightly, we talk about it a lot, we sing about it a lot, we read about it a lot. We're familiar with the death of Jesus, as we should be. But the danger is that we grow numb to the wonder of it, that we get used to it, that it starts to sound old hat. Well, of course Jesus died for sinners. That's why we're here. That's what this is all about. And I don't think that the answer to that is to dial down the references to the death of Jesus and the cross and his resurrection. I think that the answer is to slow down and linger there. You wouldn't wouldn't try to appreciate oxygen more by holding your breath, right? 
better to take more of it in, to inhale and exhale deeply. It's calming. It does something to us. And I would say in the same way, rather than sort of like take a vacation from thinking about the cross, better to slow down and, and marinate in it, to, to ponder it, to think about it, to, to pray in light of the cross until your heart is moved. Because it is his crowning achievement. It is unspeakably weighty and glorious that he did this. And so when we get used to it and find it boring and find it uninteresting, we need to slow down and look at it again. I think there's a second way that we can be tempted to underestimate Jesus, specifically in his death, rather than worship him, and it's that we can still be offended by the cross. Maybe not the way that we used to be, but here's the thing. The cross never stops pointing to our utter helplessness and moral corruption. It always carries with it that message that we needed that, that we were so lost, that we are so morally bankrupt that nothing less than the death of God's Son could fix it. So many of you know and can testify that it takes an incredible amount of humility to embrace that message. But what can happen to some of us is we, we, we exercised that humility a long time ago, right? When our life was a mess and we came to Jesus and we, we admitted that, but now we kind of look at our life and we think, I kind of have things together. Like I'm kind of, I'm doing okay. And the danger is that we can start to operate subtly as if we don't need the cross or if we're honest, we don't want to need the cross. And I'll just tell you one specific way that can show up in my life is defensiveness. When you respond to criticism with defensiveness, you, you're, you're showing that you're not able to rest in the covering of the cross and say, you know what, maybe that person misunderstood me, but I'm actually way worse than they even know. Jesus himself had to die to pay for all the ways that I'm a wreck. That, that, that ought to make us all a little bit less defensive. Uh, similarly, if you find yourself denying your sins, or, or hiding from them, or rationalizing them, or, or looking away to kind of pretend that they're not there, let this be an invitation to let the cross give you the courage to be honest. Because if, if Jesus has paid for your sins with this incredible death that's worthy of worship, then you don't have to live in denial. You don't have to pretend that you're better than you are. You can embrace the cross. The Christian life, whatever else it is, ought to be a life of humility. It's joyful, liberating humility, but it is humility. So, so may we, friends, 
brothers and sisters, may we be the kind of people that, like this woman in Mark 14, are increasingly in awe of the sacrifice that Jesus has made to cancel our debt, pay for our sins, and restore us to God. So you can reject Jesus, you can worship him, you can underestimate him. And there's one more response, which we see in verses 10 and 11, and that's abandoning Jesus. Verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas, one of the twelve, Mark reminds us, decides to be the informant that the chief priests need. He will provide the inside information that allows them to find Jesus when he's away from the crowds with his friends. Judas agrees to hand him over. Now, this has to be one of the most shocking events in human history. And surprisingly, the New Testament tells us next to nothing about his motives. We don't know why Judas did this. Certainly there was money involved. That seems to be part of it. Some have speculated maybe Judas was really intent on Jesus leading a a political revolution, and when it became clear that that was not going to happen, he grew so bitterly disillusioned that he was willing to do this. But the reality is we don't know. We don't know why. But here's what we do know, and this is an important warning for everyone associated with Christianity. Mere Proximity to Jesus does not make you a follower of Jesus. Simply being around Jesus and around Christian activities and Christian things, merely identifying as a Christian rather than as an atheist or a Buddhist or a Muslim, all of those versions of proximity do not make a person a follower of Jesus because Judas had spent years with Jesus. He heard more of the words of Jesus than almost anyone on the planet. And yet, in the end, he was revealed to be the betrayer. He joined the ranks of those who rejected Jesus. So, don't merely coast. This is a particular danger for those of you young people that have grown up around Christianity. You kind of, you know, you wear it like an old hand-me-down hat or jacket. It's just a thing that your family does. I would urge you, settle for yourself if Jesus is worth trusting and following. Because mere association, merely coasting along with a 
Respectful affiliation with Jesus is not enough. What is needed is a living faith. The kind of trust in Jesus that relies on him and him alone to be your king and rescuer. So much so that that trust starts to disrupt your life in a good way. It starts to actually change how you live and what you do and what you love and why you do the things that you do. You cannot stay neutral to a king like Jesus. You can reject him. You can underestimate him. You can hang around him and then abandon him. Or you can worship him. And what the gospel of Mark is here to say to each and every one of us is that Jesus is worthy of nothing less than our worship. To respond to him in any other way is to live out of sync with reality. Because Jesus is God in the flesh who gave his life in place of those who had betrayed him, so that through him, through trust in him, we could be brought back to God. No one else has done that. No one else could do that. And to give him that worship, to be, to be moved with awe and wonder at this Savior, is not just to do like your duty, to, to do what's right. It is to enter into life, life as it's meant to be lived. A life of joy and wholeness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are sobered by this story in Mark that reminds us yet again that there are a number of ways that we can respond to you. And they are not all the same. They are not all equally valid We're life-giving. And so we ask that you would help us to worship you, to trust you, to, to lean on you with the full weight of our lives and selves because of who you are and what you've done. Amen.